Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so this week I wanted to talk about social justice and the economic perspective of social responsibility in the global marketplace. As we move further and further along in economic development in Western countries, it is then the consideration to think about our social responsibility and a company's involvement with its society and how it gives back to the society, and also how we in the West interact with the East and so on as we become more and more of a global society. Last year, when I was road tripping away from Houston, I stopped in Oklahoma City to see my friend. And while I was there, I completely randomly ran into an acquaintance from undergrad, Anna Rower. We just got back in touch and started talking about where we're at in life, what we're doing. And I was sharing about how I'm following things in finance and had left my job at an investment bank. And then she told me how she's still very passionate about helping those who are less privileged. So anyway, we were talking about the subjects of social justice, social responsibility, corporate responsibility, and those kind of things. And given Anna's background on social justice and her expertise in the area of global supply chains, I wanted to bring her onto the show and give her the opportunity to share perspective on social justice and how we can be thinking about that as consumers in the global economy. So welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you so much, Dallas. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah. Like I said, I, I just thought it was the craziest thing that we were able to run into each other randomly in Oklahoma City six years after undergrad. Yeah, totally random. Or uh, seven years. Man, we're old. Oh, and I forgot to mention that the undergrad was up in Pennsylvania and we were running into yeah. each other in Oklahoma City. I was just going to say, I suspect I'm probably going to have a really different angle from some of what you've talked about, but no, it'll be, good. I'm excited for the conversation. No, that's good. So did my undergrad at Eastern my focus there, I did business management and economic development. So business management was pretty straightforward. Economic development, while I got some sort of science of economics, so macroeconomics and micro and took some finance classes, a lot of my classes were sort of focused on grassroots community development. What does it look like to empower the poor and marginalized? So that was sort of my background in undergrad. One thing that was really meaningful for me at Eastern University is that I felt like a lot of my classes were taught sort of through a social justice lens. That, I think, really helped to shape my worldview in a pretty significant way. Even though I felt like I was kind of already in that place, it really helped me to be able to articulate that a bit more. So after undergrad, I ended up working for four years for a philanthropic consulting firm. So I got some really great experience in what does good development look like as opposed to bad development or sort of traditional aid where you're just giving money to a group or to a government and there's lack of accountability and the approach is very top down, dictated by the West as opposed to like really understanding what are the needs in this specific community or in this specific region? What can we do to empower people to really work through their own challenges and really just providing them with the skills and resources that they need? 
So that was really fascinating for me. It was a great opportunity to take a lot of what I had learned in undergrad and to then see what that looked like in real life in terms of implementing good development work. So that was great. Did that for four years. And then I ended up packing up my life and moving to Manchester, England for a year where I got a master's in globalization and development. In my master's program, I really looked at the globalization process specifically through the lens of labor rights. So really looked at what globalization has done for workers incorporated in global supply chains and ended up writing my dissertation on the garment industry in Bangladesh. A few months before I started my master's program in April of 2013, there was a factory collapse in Dhaka, Bangladesh. The industrial building that collapsed housed a number of garment factories. Over 1,100 garment workers were killed. So this was sort of in the news. I was already interested in social justice and already had begun to think about what were the implications of that in my own life and the things that I cared about. But I just became really fascinated with that story you know, I kind of always knew like sweatshops are a thing. They're a bad thing. I know that they're a reality in how things are produced. So it was always something that bothered me, but it's not something that I ever really knew anything about. So I went to do my master's, started taking classes, learning about the globalization process and what that's looked like, specifically looking at the role that multinational corporations play In the global economy, they play a really significant role. Multinational corporations have more power and money than many governments, country governments in the world. So really understanding their significant role in the global economy. And then what are the implications of that for workers in supply chains? So I... I did a deep dive for my dissertation. It was basically six months of intense research and writing. And the industrial building that collapsed was called Rana Plaza. So I used the Rana Plaza factory collapse as a case study for my dissertation. So I looked at how labor conditions are influenced or determined in the garment industry, specifically in Bangladesh. I was really interested in understanding, can consumers play a role in helping to influence labor conditions in the garment industry. It was a really great opportunity for me to learn specifically about how global supply chains work, what impacts labor conditions. Anyway, so that's something that I'm really passionate about and am continuing to kind of figure out in my own personal life what does it look like for me to have all of this knowledge and information about how things are made and some of the negative things that I see in global supply chains and trying to to determine what does that mean for me in terms of how I make decisions and how I spend my money and the companies that I choose to support. Um, That was a lot and I was all over the place. No, it's all good. (laughs) Your background and your passion is exactly why I wanted to bring you on the show and share with my audience to talk around these issues. But the one thing that I wanted to start with 
I really just wanted to get a dialogue going with you to start from the whole subject of how economics interacts with morals and bring out the question of how inseparable or separable are economics and morals or faith. The question I want to pose to you is, what role would you say morality plays in economics? Sure. So I guess I would start by saying, like, it depends on what you mean by morality. Are we talking about absolute truth as defined by Jesus in the gospel? Or are we talking about individual morality based on subjective truths that that people create for themselves? So like you brought the big guns to this. (laughs) I'm going to speak through the lens of the gospel because that's what defines my morality. And that's the lens through which I see the world. So then I guess I would start by saying, I think that there's a false dichotomy between sacred and secular. So like if the gospel is the lens through which I see the world, then I think that it provides an all-encompassing worldview that should apply to every area of human existence. So like when I look at the world, I see that everything has a spiritual component. So when I think about economics... I understand that there's also a spiritual component to that. I think that my faith should impact every aspect of my life because I don't think that Jesus just asks for my time on Sunday morning. I think he asks for my life. He wants all of it. I think that he cares about the decisions that I make, the thoughts that I think, how I relate to people. I think all of that is influenced by who God is and who I should be in response And therefore, that affects how I view economics. I 100% agree. It is one of those things that people tend to have cognitive dissonance with, where something just happens to be convenient to feel one way. You might be a kind and nice person when you interact with your friends on an individual Mm -hmm. basis. But then Mm -hmm. when it comes to your workplace, you say, I have to do whatever it takes to earn the money to support my family kind of thing. And then the morals go out the window. Just because it's a different setting doesn't mean different morality applies. So I completely agree with the perspective that faith and morality weaves into every single aspect of life. And it doesn't make any sense to compartmentalize and only say that you're going to consider the merit of good interactions with people only on your individual basis and not on an economic basis as well. Right. That being the case... How does what you believe, what you're saying in your faith, influence how you think economics and economies should work on a very macro scale? Sure. So I guess I can start by talking about capitalism because that's the global economic system the majority of the world uses. So like as I was thinking about what I wanted to explain for this podcast, I think I thought about the fact that the global economy doesn't function as a theory, right? So you can have economic theory. It's easy for economists to theorize about economic models that produce the best financial outcomes. So if you think about capitalism, you know, in its purest form, you have the laws of supply and demand, and they dictate the price of commodities. You know, the perspective is that the free market shouldn't be impeded by intervention of any external actors. And that if you have all of those things in place, you're going to get the best economic outcomes. So like in theory, that's sort of how it works. But I think one of the things that I think about is the best economic outcomes for who. If you look at real life and what does the economy look like in real life, I see 
capitalism as a system that largely exploits is is based on exploitation, not always and not necessarily. But I do see that that is something that has played an integral part in the laws of supply and demand. I see the way that workers are affected by this idea of laissez-faire, not having any intervention, just letting prices be completely determined by supply and demand, and everything sort of being based only on the financial benefit. I don't disagree with it from a financial economic growth model, but in terms of the way that that affects people, I don't know. I'm still kind of struggling to know what the best economic model is. I don't know that there's any economic model that is currently being implemented in the world that aligns well with the gospel. So, you know, from that perspective, I was talking about the fact that I don't think you can separate faith from secular things like economic systems. But at the same time, I don't think economic systems have moral value or merit assigned to them. So there was actually an economist that said, is economics amoral? A lot of people tend to think that way. George Soros and finance will say that the markets are amoral and that there's no moral stance to the markets and economies. I think that's a completely ignorant position to have. To say that it exists in a vacuum outside of people's judgments of what is right and wrong. Right. I absolutely think that like you can't separate morality or faith from anything, but I don't think that money is intrinsically good or bad. We place value on money based on how we choose to use it. This just goes back to what we started with. And to say that values of saying what is right and wrong and what is good and bad completely affect what decisions are appropriate and how markets are going to work in economies and how you choose to participate in a marketplace. So going back to the first point, they're completely inseparable. And then just speaking to what you were saying about ideal economic forms, the selfishness of individuals humanity in our fallen state is that nothing is going to be perfect. Regardless of what economic system you can come up with, whether you say capitalism or socialism or communism, you could come up with any variety of economic systems and none of them is going to be perfect in a world where you have people that are selfish and flawed. That's kind of the catch-22 that I think we have. From one perspective, you could say communism on paper looks fantastic, and then you try it out and you find out that people lack the incentives to put in the effort for jobs that require more effort. And then on the capitalism side, it creates incentives to take advantage of other people or to disregard other people's well-being. So you have both sides of the spectrum that have their flaws, and it just reflects the character of people than necessarily the economic systems themselves. Yeah. So it's actually interesting you brought up communism. This is totally a side note, but I'm reading a book called Strength to Love by Martin Luther King Jr. right now. It's basically a compilation of a number of different sermons that he preached. I recently read a chapter that he wrote on how should a Christian view communism. So it was really fascinating, his argument. So if you're interested in hearing his argument, 
I thought he had some really good points. And there's a lot of social justice themes in that book. Let's move it a step further. We're talking about the general framework of how you as an individual might think about how an economy might be structured. And then the next step logically to go to is what is my role as a consumer in that economy? And this is kind of what you were speaking sure. to in your introduction. So I just want to speak to that a little bit more. Sure. So there's a couple other things I wanted to say before we move to that. One thing I wanted to add, so in talking about the capitalist system, one of the biggest issues that I see with how it's currently functioning, and this is something that I researched when I was looking at specifically the global fashion industry, is that there's a lack of any sort of global regulatory framework in setting basic standards for how things are produced. You have like industry standards. So like this product needs to meet this particular standard on plastic or whatever. But in terms of like global labor standards, that's not something that exists. And so that's a major gap that I see in being able to really address a lot of the exploitation that I know is happening in our capitalist system. So just wanted to throw that out there. I don't have a solution other than I think that governments need to play a bigger role and civil society needs to play a bigger role in putting some pressure and having expectations and demanding transparency from corporations. If you look at the power dynamics in the global economy, you have multinational corporations that are calling all the shots because they're the ones that have all the money. So they basically go where they want to go. They set up shop where they want to set up shop. You have, in some cases, obviously corporations want to go set up production facilities wherever wages are low. I get that from an economic perspective. They want to go where taxes are low or non-existent. And in a lot of cases, governments will, in order to attract foreign direct investment, they will basically turn a blind eye and say, we're going to give you a pass, do whatever you want to do, as long as you're coming to invest in our economy. That's going on behind the scenes. And so I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that it's going to require multiple actors in the economy to hold corporations accountable rather than sort of letting them continue to just govern themselves. Anyway, wanted to say that. Go ahead. I think that's a worthy point. And I don't have a solution that I'm providing, but I would say on a positive note that I, I mm -hmm. do believe that as economies become more prosperous, that working conditions and people's well-being as participants in those economies becomes better off. Because true, if you look back to, let's say, thousands of years ago, you had people who were literally slaves and had no freedom of their own. Even you read books like The Jungle, hearing about right. the working conditions in the U.S. not too long yeah. ago. And we'd say that's horrific to even imagine that it was that way. Because we've come so far to where we are now, not that things are perfect in American working conditions or anything. But what I'm saying on a positive note is that if you think of the things that were happening that were exposed in the jungle about working conditions in America, mm -hmm. and then you liken that to things that are going on in places like India or China or wherever today, and mm -hmm. then fast forward maybe 50 or 100 years, the hope would be that they've been able to get to where we are. As the economies become more prosperous, people's lives become better and working conditions become better. There's less oppression and wrongdoing from companies, I guess you could say. Yeah. 
So absolutely agree with that. I think that is the process. As a country develops economically, the implications are that living conditions, working conditions, everything in society is going to improve. So absolutely agree. And you see that happening in places like China. So one of the things that I researched in my dissertation was the fact that 10, 15 years ago, a lot of garment production was done in China because wages were so low, but wages actually have increased enough there that multinational corporations pulled out and are now have manufacturing facilities in places like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, where wages are still very low. So yes, that is the goal of economic development, that society overall improves, including working conditions. But I guess what I would say is, I don't think that it was okay that working conditions were what they were 50 years ago in the US. So do we want that to be the model by which all other countries develop? I would say, let's find a better process so that people are not being exploited along the way. And I realize that I'm sure I'm being idealistic because I know that almost every company is number one concern is the bottom line. So I get that. But I just think that our minimum standards need to be a little bit higher than what they are. So another challenge with the way the globalized economy is set up, and I'm speaking, so my knowledge is specifically with the garment industry, and I'm sure this is the case with many industries, but the garment industry is one of the most dispersed industries in the world in terms of where everything's produced. All over the world, you have different aspects of, say, a t-shirt. The cotton's being grown in one place, and it's being woven in another place, and the buttons are being put on somewhere else. And so it's it's all over the place. And so a multinational corporation that's headquartered in the U.S. or in the U.K., they have suppliers all over the world, and their production is so scattered that in a lot of cases, they don't even know all of the different factories that are being utilized. There's so many intermediary levels. They're working with a supplier, and that supplier has sub-suppliers. That can go all the way down to like home-based workers where your women and children are working in their homes as part of that supply chain. So that's the reality of what global production looks like. That poses a significant challenge in terms of a corporation being able to actually have a transparent supply chain and for them to know what's happening throughout every aspect of their supply chain. So I think that it creates additional work if a corporation actually wants to understand, they're going to have to do the work and invest the money to be able to know what's happening throughout every aspect of their supply chain, which I know is a challenge. And that's why a lot of companies haven't done that. So I think in some cases, you have well-intentioned corporations that are just ignorant or haven't put in the work to have a better understanding and more visibility of all of the different areas of production. But I don't think that that's an excuse. I think that it should be a requirement of every corporation to have visibility of their entire production process. This is very high level, but just to go back to speak to what you were saying about some kind of solution, instead of having to go through the process that developed countries have gone through in terms of having poor working conditions, et cetera, to better working conditions as they are now, and thinking of a way to skip that process for developing countries like India or China or Bangladesh Mm -hmm. or wherever, in the end, there's a similar solution for this as there are to most of these things. It has to be at a faith and a moral level. 
Yeah. If you have individuals that have no qualms about harming other people, then it doesn't matter what regulations you put. True. People are going to find a way to do what they want to get done, irrespective of how it harms other people. Mm -hmm. But if you have people that are loving and compassionate and care about other people, then you don't even need the laws. Like ideally, you know, if, if people are truly yeah. loving their neighbor, then they want to do everything to help their neighbor and not harm them. Then any kind of legislation falls by the wayside. So that's not really necessarily providing a solution for what you're saying. I'm just saying, I think this is an example of one of the issues that is about a heart thing yeah. uh, on an individual level. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And what that makes me think about is the fact that I think there need to be more Christians in business. There need to be more Christian economists. There need to be more Christian lawmakers rather than Christian sort of taking a back seat and responding to laws that are being determined by non-believers or business practices that are being set by non-believers. I think we need to be in the space and to have an impact in that way. Now, obviously, not everyone's called to go into business, but some people are. So I think in whatever role we're in as believers, we need to think about what does it look like in my space, in my community to play a part in loving my neighbor? What does that look like? And I love that you brought up the idea of my neighbor, right? So for a lot of people, when they think about their neighbor, they think about their literal neighbor, right? The people that live next door, that live on their block, maybe their immediate family, Absolutely. We're called to love the people right in front of us. I think for me, just because of my background and experience and living abroad and traveling abroad, when I think about my neighbor, I literally think about the entire world, which probably sounds super cliche and, and ridiculous. But I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about understanding the impact that decisions that are made here in the U.S. are having on someone on the other side of the world is that I see them as my neighbor. They are created in the image of God. They desire to have a good life just like I do. They have kids that they want to be able to get an education and have food on the table. And so that's kind of my framework or perspective in terms of how I think about this and why I care about it so much. So is this your official yeah. announcement for running for political office? <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm ready for that yet. Maybe one day, not sure if God's calling me to that or not. But I have become more interested in politics in the past couple of years because politics plays such a significant role in setting and governing the systems that this country is based on, that the world is based Absolutely. on, and the people that I care about are part of those systems. So I definitely... There's just, an, unfortunately, a whole lot of fluff surrounding it. Lots of fluff. <laughs> So we're kind of running short on time, so I'm going to go ahead and cut it off, but we definitely have a lot more we can be talking about, and I think that we still need to address. So let's uh, go ahead and cut it off here. We'll pick it up next week, continuing on the discussion on social justice and getting into some of the nuances on global supply chains. So thanks again, Anna, for coming on the show, and uh, come back next week, and we'll keep talking. Thanks, Dallas. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget, you can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play.